Hello, folks. Welcome to yet another episode of Kitchfork. Before we begin, I just wanted to say that various forces in the universe conspired against you hearing this episode today, but thankfully, backups are a thing that exists. And just like this band that we were about to talk about, I, I slayed the metaphorical dragons and demons so that you would be able to hear it. However, it also means that we're behind schedule quite a bit, so we're going to try and post an episode next week as well in an attempt to get back on some semblance of schedule. So many things have happened since we recorded this episode. The album mentioned by our guest, Dark Life, came out uh, and caused quite a stir, and our collective predictions turned out to be quite true. But yes, it also caused quite a stir on the Rate Your Music community. <laughs> this is a review post from Rate Your Music, posted by Keith Rankin, who's also a member of Death's Dynamic Shroud, uh, along with our guest. Among other things, this is <laughs> from user Safer Drunk. Nothing new I can tell you. New generations who listen to such a trash music are doomed. This is weird and dangerous, but we are responsible for that. People who couldn't tame our children. So there you go. Also, our sponsor today, as per usual, is Imitone. The tagline is Mind to Melody. It's a program that you can sing or whistle to control any music software as if you're playing the notes by hand. It's designed to be intuitive, instant, and expressive, and fun to mess around with. So... If you are interested in it, there's a listener's offer for listeners of Kitchfork. You can get $5 off the standard edition of Imitone and $10 off the studio edition if you go to imitone.com slash kitchfork, which is K-I-T-S-C-H-F-O-R-K. So please check it out. But in any case, it begins. Leave it or not, this was the plan of action. Perfect teenage became a drug racket when the atomic crust tore your skew. Cause then the next fatty Welcome to the Kitchfork Media Podcast, an anti-nostalgic look back at the indie music scene uh, of the aughts and all of the terrible, terrible things it did to culture. I'm Max Cohen. <laughs> I'm uh, your co-host, Liz Ryerson. 
And we have a guest with us today. We do. James, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, yes, hello. I'm James Webster from Death's Dynamic Shroud. You also might recognize me from the Neo Gaia Fantasy Virtual Desktop Experience podcast, although we are on hiatus. Oh, I didn't realize you had a podcast. <laughs> I mean, more or less. It's kind of a, uh, a chat show where Tech and myself and uh, Kevin, who's a quip, and uh, Mark, who's R23X, all get together on Skype, and I make uh, cute little OBS layouts of different uh, user interfaces from the history of desktop computing. Oh, okay. But we haven't done that for a while. Yeah. We just kind of talk about whatever, so it's not really themed or anything. That would be a very interesting and specific theme for, <laughs> for an episode of <laughs> desktop themes. Yes, know. exactly, exactly. So you know, we have like a Mac OS six episode and a Mac OS seven episode, oh, okay. Mac OS eight episode. You know, Windows ten did a Windows eleven one that was really awful. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, the album that we are talking about today is two thousand two's source tags and codes, not source codes and tags, uh, even though it probably should be called that. That's <laughs> It's only ever been source tags and like when I think about the the actual term, it's still source tags and codes in my head. Yeah, by and you will know us by the trail of dead. Oh, I should say ellipses and you will know us. Yes, by dot, the dot, trail yeah, of you have dead. to pause. It's it's and you will know us by the trail of dead. You gotta have that pause. <laughs> uh, famously an album that netted a 10.0 from Pitchfork and I think was the last 10 that they gave to no actually I think was Yankee Hotel I think Yankee Hotel Foxtrot was after that but undeservingly yes undeservingly <laughs> we already talked about that one in our first episode but yeah I think we had some pretty mixed mostly positive but somewhat mixed opinions on that but I, I, I like it but source tags is a better album for sure yeah i had a hardcore anti-wilco bias <laughs> when i was a teenager and there was really no reason for it because they're fine but i just couldn't s stomach the thought of wilco for some reason back then we actually might that this actually might come up over the course of talking about it because this band but who by the way is from austin texas they said some spicy things about the Chicago music scene of the era in an interview. They say spicy things all the time. The great thing about Trail of Dead is like their whole vibe from the beginning is just two guys who are kind of assholes. <laughs> I, I saw myself in them, I remember, yeah. like, watching videos and interviews of them. Like, man, they're just a couple of, like, they're all just like egomaniac heavily opinionated jerks just like me. exactly yeah do you and do you and tech honors from death's dynamic shroud do you guys relate to that yeah i'd say big time um, i've often thought death's dynamic shroud is the trail of dead of our current era <laughs> we are way way nicer more understanding empathetic and uh open-minded now than we were in our early 20s but that you know when if you're ever like that it's always going to be a part right. of you, you know? yeah no i i was i was being slightly facetious too but uh i know tech says some pretty spicy things on twitter so but and yeah the two main members are guitarist conrad keely and drummer jason reese actually so I guitarist drummers both of them which is what i love about the band is like oh when it started they would just swap between songs <laughs> uh, interesting 
But yeah, and for the early going of the band, including this album, also uh, they had two other members, Neil Bush and Kevin Allen. And Neil Bush, I think, was the bassist. He had a couple songs on the album, but he left, I think, right after this album. So. He left while they were doing Worlds Apart. Like he okay. was, I, Wikipedia says he was removed from the band, which is ominous. Oh, um, that is very ominous. Not to get off track, but um, have either of you ever seen the documentary DVD that came with Worlds Apart? Oh, yes. Chronicled them making it is it's just like I have not. Yeah, we should we should get into talking about our backgrounds with the band as a way to get into that. Mm. Um, so if if James, if you want to start, so I invited you to this episode specifically because when this album hit its twentieth anniversary uh, earlier in the year in February, I saw both you and Tech tweeting about it, and to be honest, I had always thought of the album as I like I I hadn't met anybody who like really really liked this album, so I was like, huh. And then when we were doing our podcast episodes i was like oh you'd be a perfect guest so yes what is your background with uh trail of the trail of dead so well let's see the album came out in 2002 which is actually the year that i graduated from high school so i was a a spry 18 year old who was you know obsessed with kid a and uh guided by voices and like doves and like post brit pop stuff mm. um and i played in a band with tech of course called the sailing and you know we called ourselves space rock but it you know it wasn't really like i don't know it was more like muse than anything else which is another band that i was obsessed with at the time so i liked really big epic music with sick chord progressions that sort of leaned sort of anglo you know that sort of uh beatlesque uh canon if you will and I'll never forget the first time I ever heard Trail of Dead, um, we were in our uh, drummer Gus's basement. It was a band practice, and he had this little CRT with MTV2 playing on it. Um, MTV2 was this great uh, TV station that only played music videos, because yeah. at that point, MTV had become something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a it was a television commercial for this album, by, and you will know us by the Trail of Dead, and they just played a clip of a verse from another morning stoner which is just this i mean the whole verse is basically just like two jangly seventh chords going back and forth with just the drummer just riding on this crash cymbal and i was just like oh my god this whole song is just like one sick chord this is like completely exactly what i want to hear and have not ever heard yet because it was also like you know it had an edge it was hard but not like like uh, pop punk or post hardcore or whatever else was going on like at that time in the early 2000s it was like i don't know there was something very sort of jangly but ethereal and and you could just tell that it was a band that wanted to be as big sounding as they could possibly be mm-hmm. um and so i probably drove to best buy to purchase the cd because that was something that you did back in those days and i remember just like putting it in and then hearing the first track for the first time um you know it was there that i saw you which starts with this you know little guitar thing that just explodes yeah Yeah. and and our our best buy was right next to um the interstate uh 675 and it just so happened that it exploded right as i was you know on the entrance ramp getting on the highway feeling the g-forces as my car accelerated (laughs) 
as they just like were taking me there and i was just head banging and just like probably grinning ear to ear and was like yes this is exactly what i want right now so that cd stayed in my car for you know at least two years after that album came out um so it was really fun to actually go back and listen to it for this podcast as i was getting around i was like oh man damn this still hits that's cool. I, I didn't realize that they had even had television spots for this album. Yeah, it was a weird time. It's Interscope, you know, they had the budget for it. That's true, yeah. Um, Max, what is your background? Okay, yeah. So I remember So I remember when this came out, what, I was just like a freshman in high school? I would have been like 14 or 15. Um, and so I was already pretty plugged in. And I remember either because I was had like a contrarian streak or whatever, when I saw this getting like, tens and five stars i was like i'm not interested this sounds boring (laughs) (laughs) like i think especially because like a lot of the reviews at the time weren't really conveying what the album sounded like like i think if anything i read was like oh this sounds like sonic youth but like louder and angrier i would have been all over it but nobody did and i just ignored it for a while and then i want to say a couple years afterwards i was in this used cd store and they were playing the self-titled album their first album Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Holy! This is like the best shit I've ever heard. I'm loving every song they play on this album because it's like that album is absolutely just like a lo-fi Sonic Youth album with like these really kind of jangly, uh, epic aims. You know, Sonic Youth is, are, are kind of like art musos who are more about uh, trying to be kind of stoic and, and cool. Yeah, I was just gonna say they're way too cool. Yeah, very New York cool. They're New yeah. York cool, but like, and you'll notice by the Trail of Dead." takes some like similar you know sonic trademarks and then just goes fucking all out like they are they're messy and weird and loud and emotional about it and it's just like and totally nerds and i think that was absolutely what drew me to them (laughs) yeah these guys are dorks i love it so i asked the guy who it was he told me it was that album i bought it and then it was after that after i got really obsessed with that and madonna that i finally got to source tags probably around when I graduated and went off to college and it became like my college album, like definitely that first year of college up in Boston, like it was a big, big deal. And I, so I'm one of those people who kind of likes Madonna better, but it's also, it's, it's sort of stunning to think about like the jump between those first two albums and source tags, just in the sound of it. And again, it is like right there with it. uh, It was there that I saw you, which is like, their songs are, were trying to be massive before, but because of like, you know, they're recording it kind of themselves, you know, and producing it themselves, it would be like thin or tinny or somewhat poorly mixed. And it was there that I saw one of the things I love about this album is that the mixing is extremely well done, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. absurdly well done. And there's so much going on in this song without becoming like a sludge or a mess. It's like massive in a way that I think very few bands, at least at that point that I'd ever heard of, had ever reached. And yeah, and I was just really so, and I, you know, I stuck with them for that and for Worlds Apart. And I think it wasn't until like So Divided that I was like, mm, I'm going to get off this train for a while. Yeah, same thing. Yeah, same, same trajectory for me. Yeah. That's the, it's a problem when you record a Guided by Voices song and it sounds exactly the same except worse. But that's like the best song on the <laughs> album too. Like. In the original version. That was the only, actually getting into my intro, that was the only song I had heard from them. And I was like, this sounds like a hi-fi version of the original Guided by Voices song, except it's worse. 
Yeah, that album was not. Worlds Apart gets sh- like shit on unnecessarily. I think that album's actually pretty great. I think Worlds Apart is too nerdy for most people. You know, I mean, mm. just look at the cover. It's completely ridiculous. It's like <laughs> Gandalf fighting centurions. It's, like... it's it's total prog nonsense, but I love that shit. Oh, yes. Yeah, see, that's a that's a recipe for a 4.0 in Pitchfork if I've ever seen one. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's that's more of what like uh, our band the sailing was kind of like just unabashedly into rpgs and fantasy yeah. and like you know we had our own lore and stuff but we didn't care because we figured oh we're, we're in a rock band so yeah. we can be super nerdy and that automatically makes us cool um in retrospect that was not true yeah no especially during that era it makes sense they the guided boy voices song that they covered is like one of the most like you know lord of the rings sounding yeah, guided the- voices song magisterial quality to it yeah the goldheart mountaintop queen directory oh it's that's right yeah goldheart mountaintop i can totally forgot about that i was like what should be <laughs> cold hands touching my face don't hide the snake can see you old friends you might not remember fading what's great about them though is that like they're super prog nerds right but they're also so visceral like i saw them live in like 05 with the worlds apart lineup and they're so violent like they go so hard like when they were starting out in austin nobody wanted nobody would lend them their drum shit because they would always break it they were breaking everybody's drums and so no no band ever like lent equipment to trail of dead they were infamous <laughs> so that is actually what got part of what got them attention and got them signed to interscope um i'll get to that in a second so just like real quickly my background is i had not heard this album or this band really at all until the last few weeks, you know, outside of that Guided by Voices cover. I had heard of this album, but I think by the time I really noticed it, they were kind of like, they had an interesting cycle with Pitchfork where Pitchfork almost immediately went back on their their 10.0 that they gave it. And then by the time that uh, Worlds Apart was released, uh, you know, they gave them a four. And I, I don't know, I, I just remember hearing people mention it in the context of well like oh this album's not essential and i think i what i assumed from like looking at the cover was that it was like godspeed you black emperor because of the name of the band right yeah Mm -hmm. i guess if you hear just like the first bits of the opening track uh which weirdly there's like multiple different track lists and different versions but i'm talking about like the invocation track yeah, then I guess you would get that sense, but I I didn't really understand like what the band was, so I just never checked them out. And but I'm glad I did. I'm into it. But yeah, that's essentially it for me. You know, it's funny when I was listening to this album again to prepare for this. Um, I was taking notes, and I noted in separate places that there was I I could hear a guided by voices influence, like he's singing like Bob Pollard on a couple tracks that I never really picked up on. Interesting. And there's definitely. I mean, that post-rock influence 
is there for sure too i feel that like there's some lift your skinny fists you know just peppered here i mean so so there's an interesting like sub genre that we that i've talked about a lot with max of like that i call millennium albums of like these like very like apocalyptic very like epic scale mm-hmm. albums that were released around we'll say like I, I don't know i guess okay computer is the first one of those that i would put and then like 2002 is kind of the end of that and i i guess i would slot this album into that even though it doesn't have like that sort of genre and i think part of it comes from like artists who were previously like indie or whatever suddenly getting like a lot of money and like able to like just increase like their production values a lot so so the 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 album started to sound like a lot more expensive i mean i'm thinking of this or moon in antarctica right. or mm. kid a or you know the soft bulletin etc cetera, etc cetera. Well, yeah, I also I also actually specifically made a note and I just wrote OK Computer Syndrome because I think that that's a very real phenomenon that I've also, you know, it was like the golden age of like neo concept rock albums, you know, like the yeah. perfect 11 or 12 tracks with that perfect opener, the great single as a second track, the come down on track four, and then like the three track end sequence you know with a come down at the end Mm -hmm. and then all topped off with a ghost track and like this album checks every single one of those boxes it's big time okay computer worship i think yeah definitely i mean uh in interviews that i was reading they mentioned a bunch of like they mentioned pink floyd they mentioned pet Mm -hmm. sounds like it's i I swear like every (laughs) every indie band from the 2000s interviewed talks about pet sounds but Anyway, um, I think it's interesting because I, I think that's part of the reason why me and Max started in 2002, like for a lot of these episodes is mm-hmm. not only because it's like a 20 year anniversary, but it's sort of the transition point from that kind of millennium period into the like era of pitchfork indie, the uh, hipster scenester stuff, etc. But yeah, I, I would slot this more into that like you know 1997 2002 and i think that's an another interesting thing it's like you can definitely see that this is a band that came out of the 90s right which is like it's not something that is really like a problem but for music critics at the time maybe they were looking for that sort of break with you know the the sonic use and the fugazis and the super chunks and the built to spills or whatever like Mm. So that might have been why they were not as influential or, you know, big in that space, maybe as... um... There was something almost like, I think it goes back to like kind of the nerdiness, but there's something almost embarrassingly earnest about them. Yeah. Um, And about like, you know, rock music in general during, and the early aughts is when like being cool and detached was starting to be in vogue again. Mm -hmm. So I feel like that was part of it. I think... The vibe you get when you see some of the backlash to source tags is one of embarrassment. Mm. I feel like like people feeling embarrassed that they got so excited about this very like genuinely epic prog album in a way that like I think people are are better at now. But at the time, you know, this kind of stuff is really uncool. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so strange to me, and it probably is strange to anybody else who is might be listening to this album for the first time that because that those like dynamics at the time like aren't really something that you perceive and like you know the 90s is basically as far away to me as the 2000s at this point Mm -hmm. so i don't really distinguish them as being separate eras but you know but we i should talk a little bit about just uh the background of the band before we get into talking about the album Mm -hmm. so just some basic info so like I said, Conrad Keeley and Jason Reese have been the only two like consistent members. They're one of those bands that like they've had a lot of turnover. But Conrad Keeley and Jason Reese, I think they grew up together in Hawaii uh, originally. And then they both moved to Olympia. And they were in Olympia, Washington in the early 90s, which is interesting because that's, you know, when like Bikini Kill and right. K Records and all that stuff is is popping up. But yeah, uh, Keeley went to Evergreen State, which is, you know, <laughs> where uh, the Simpsons creator went. I guess that's the most famous thing it's, about it's it. A, it's a very pretentious, arty school where you like, <laughs> yeah. where hippies invent their own degrees. Yeah, it's one of those you make your own curriculum. But yeah, then they moved to Austin in the mid-90s and Austin, Texas, and, you know, eventually connected up with Neil Bush and Kevin Allen, who were their members for several albums up until this one. And they released their first album in 1998. But 1999's Madonna, which is the one that um, that Max was referencing, with that album, they got signed to Merge Records. So it's interesting because Merge became such a brand name in the 2000s, but I don't really think it was quite that yet. No, I mean, it, it was still like their first album. It's still a jump from whatever their first album was released on. I don't even know the name of that label, but like it wasn't a label with a lot of PR budget. I don't think outside of, again, randomly hearing it in a used record store, I don't think I've ever seen anybody talk about it. Trance Syndicate is the name of the label. I think it went under in 1999. So that's part of the reason. But they just a shame because that album fucking rules. Yeah. They befriended Super Chunk, who, of course, uh, their lead singer is and his wife are the people who founded Merge. Mm-hmm. So they released on Merge along with their fellow, (laughs) we talked about Spoon last episode. It's so funny to me to like have Spoon and And You Will Know Us by the Trail of the Dead like in the same scene, like friends with each other and put in the same category because my reaction is so vastly different. Their vibes are so different. Yeah. Yeah. The the main thing they have in common is they're all assholes. (laughs) Yeah, it seems like Spoon would just be way too cool for them. You know, but and the other big band in that scene was Fastball. Do you know? Do you yeah. all know Fastball? Yeah. Of yeah. course, they made up their minds yes. and they started packing. That song is so fucking. All good. the paid money can buy is legit, like a fantastic album. But again, like I could see Fastball and Spoon coming out of the same like milieu, but I, I have a trouble like putting "And You Will Know Us" by The Trail of Dead in the same one, but. Um, they got famous for their like very rowdy and raucous live shows, and they got written up in Enemy, um, and that's where Interscope co-founder Jimmy Iovine, uh, or Iovine, sorry, Jimmy Iovine, famous for working with Bruce Springsteen, and mm-hmm. also he co-founded Beats by Dre with Dr. Dre. Yeah. Yeah, he saw an article about them, and then he like bought Madonna and was really into it. So he oh, signed wow. them, and they were the only band that was like that at all on Interscope. Like Interscope was releasing Eminem, and like it wasn't a label that was known for like releasing rock, 
<laughs> bands that had come yeah rock in general or bands that had come out of like the indie scene. it's very funny to me that jimmy iovine oh he discovers bands the way i do by buying the whatever british import magazine came out in the borders yeah yeah it was in borders yeah that costs like 15 or 20 bucks because it's imported yeah um so they had a bigger budget for this it's sort of like the black alicious album that we were talking about where they they had a big budget so they're like well we're gonna shoot our shot with this album because we're on a major label now i think they had a budget of 150k which you know at the time was more money and yeah so they recorded it san francisco and nashville um they actually recorded a whole ton of like ambient music when when they were in nashville and they said that like most of it didn't fit the album and that it was never going to see the light of day which is a real shame so they ended up throwing that into like the segues right for this album which is like also there are like some different track lists like uh some versions don't have the first track as invocation like i think the original u.s release didn't have that track or uh Wait, is there a, an opening track that isn't it was there that i saw yeah yeah right it's so weird it's right called invocation yeah it's only oh i don't think i've ever heard that contemporary like re-releases have that on it it's on the spotify the version but yeah there's like yeah three songs on the spotify version that aren't on the cd i bought wow but they're all like interludes i right. think uh yeah i'm working off the rip of my original cd that is still in my like itunes library same so yeah that's news to me yeah you're not missing that much they're just inter- like in, there's invocation there's life is elsewhere i think after the laughter is on the that's on the real album. Album. Yeah, that is yeah, yeah. But and then there's the bonus track blood rights is it blood rights yeah which is not on the version that i have uh but invocation and life is elsewhere are so. i feel like that was on like the the homage single or something that track is familiar to yes, me yes so when they got signed uh they released an ep interscope put it on an ep only a few months before which was also reviewed by pitchfork uh just but it has relative ways and homage and uh blood rights as well as like an ambient piece it's called The Blade Runner, which I guess is yes. in their habit of naming things after movies. Right. But yeah, so it came out in February 2002, reviewed by Fitch- Pitchfork, famously given a 10. And one thing that's very interesting about it is the same person, the one other episode that we had a guest on for this podcast was the the Liz Fair uh, self-titled album, which got a zero. And that was right. reviewed by the same person as this 10 review, uh, Matt LeMay. Wow. Yeah. He can be your angle or your devil. Only a Sith Lord deals in absolutes. <laughs> yeah. And those are his two most famous reviews. And both reviews, he says he regrets. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, which is kind of strange. But, you know, I, I feel like an album like this, there there needs to be at least one album like this that gets a 10 out of 10 for all of the, like, nerdy-brained, like, people that want to build epic worlds out there. There should be at least one time in the history of music criticism in which that is not frowned upon, you know? Yeah. So I think that... This album getting a 10 out of 10, that was like a beacon of hope for, you know, people like me out there that just wanted to make (laughs) any concept albums. That swiftly closed. For the first time since The Wall. Yeah, that's... (laughs) Max, do you want to read a little bit from this review, if that's all right? Yeah, you know, the review is not as fun, but uh, let me pull it up real quick. Okay. It's like a a track by tracker, which is 
weird for Pitchfork. They usually just make a grand statement and then run away. But speaking of grand statements, some music begs to be explored, promising fascination and intrigue beyond your wildest dreams. Its distant melodies beckon you towards it while you try your very best to discern every distinct element that presents itself to you. As you get closer and closer, you begin to relax, letting yourself become completely enveloped by the entrancing tones. Of course, it's all a trap. Just as you begin to lose yourself, you become vaguely aware that the sound that soothingly beckoned you has now transformed into something vastly different, something powerful, dangerous, and merciless. What was so beautiful at a safe distance is still beautiful, but what was once tranquil and peaceful has has metamorphosed into a vicious, violent glory. Before you can even respond, you're flat on your back, pulverized by its sheer force <laughs> oh my goodness good god i mean fair yeah you know? i mean i think that's pretty fair i think it has a similar tone to like the kid a uh absolutely which is like music what a concept <laughs> there is something to be said for just how like genuinely mind blown this reaction is i kind of love it so I should say that when uh, the Fiona Ap- uh, Apple album Fetch the Bolt Cutters got a 10 for Pitchfork, uh, The Ringer had a history of the Pitchfork 10.0, and they interviewed Matt LeMay about this review. And what he said is, I saw them play a show at the Knitting Factory where they trashed everything and yelled at us, and I knew precious little about rock music history for someone who was writing for Pitchfork at the time. And to me, that still felt so cool and exciting and dangerous to whatever extent. And he basically says that, yeah, he was a high school senior when he wrote this review, which is kind of, yeah, so he would have been the same age as as you, James. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Which, yeah, I mean, I, it, it totally makes more sense in context of that. And I, uh, oh, yeah, okay, in the review, there's a quote where he says, it will take you in, rip you to shreds, piece you together, lick your wounds clean, and send you back into the world with a concurrent sense of loss and hope. And you will never, ever be the same. That's also from the review. <laughs> Again, true. Well, you know, and I True think, shit. I, I think that really is a testament to beyond anything else on this album you cannot deny the album craft yeah as far as like the like the perfect okay computer style which was kind of dark side of the moon style you know concept rock album Mm -hmm. i mean this thing just really ticks all the boxes especially that end section yeah you know you have relative ways as this like massive massive climax that like you can't even believe how big and beautiful it is you know i forget (laughs) and it's just like getting bigger and bigger he can't quite hit the notes and then suddenly it just snaps into that big swinging cut time into that after the laughter like huge come down with the old like <laughs> ballroom music caretaker sample oh right yeah and it's just perfect and then you get the final track which starts off like it's going to be this kind of reflective sort of tumbling along last track but even that turns out to be a climax in itself yeah it's and it just gets it kind of ends with two pop songs almost it, uh, it for, super mm. does and I, I think one of the cool things about this that makes it in my opinion better than most concept albums is that it's short and it's very like consistently awesome 
It seems like an album that is longer than it is, mm-hmm. which is actually probably good. It's about the length of like Kid A or, or something, which is like... Yeah, it's not super long. There's no like eight part suites, but it still has an epic scope. It's one of those albums that I kind of feel like gets better as it goes. Um, the one thing I wanted to say about the Matt LeMay Pitchfork 10.0 is this is what he said about the score. He said, if you look at a 10.0 as a personal evaluation of quality in the moment, then yes, I gave it the score that I felt it deserved at the time but he says if you look at it as a marker of cultural significance that one would expect to extend beyond the moment of evaluation i think it's fair to say that it was not a great call i don't know like (laughs) i just think it's like especially when you give something like a really good score it's like it feels kind of shitty to go back on it like yeah like i get that it's like not as influential it didn't sell as many copies as yankee hotel foxtrot or whatever but it's more influential than gay (laughs) by 12 rods yeah Yeah. the ep gay but yeah i i mean for somebody who is probably getting into it now i don't think those distinctions matter and like the book hasn't been closed yet on some of this stuff you know, like 20 years later is when the reevaluation like really starts to happen. And as somebody who heard this for the first time, like recently, I was really drawn in right away. And, you know, I don't think about any of that stuff in terms of like, you know, the score it received or whatever. The problem is it's just become famous for that because Pitchfork like wasn't necessarily the as big as it was until you know it didn't become the a really big juggernaut uh, until like a year or two after that and then by the time that it did you know and their next album came out they gave them a bad review and apparently that like seriously affected them being able to sell shows like apparently the attendance like went way down for shows which is like a common like refrain we'll hear for some of the the hype like in this early era of like some of the bands that like Pitchfork hypes up and then kind of goes back on, you can see like their the attendance numbers uh, to their shows and like the amount of albums they sell like go vastly down, which is like, I mean, it's par for the course in terms of any of these like hype things. I mean, certainly Enemy is famous for hyping bands up and then, you know, shitting all over them. Yeah, there's there's precedent. I would say that the score is accurate in the sense that at the time... You know, it's like Pitchfork was probably looking for, okay, like what's something that is new and fresh and new millennium? Like we need to start finding the masterpieces of the new millennium. And if you listen to this album compared to everything else that came out in 2002, which there was a lot of good stuff, but it was like, I have a very, very specific memory of right after I got into it, I'll never forget. It was like a band practice day. And we all went to White Castle before practice. <laughs> and uh, we bumped into uh, my old friend, Steve Emmons, who was there. And and we were just talking about music. And he was like, oh, yeah, have you heard that Source Tags and Codes by uh, Trail of Dead? And I was like, oh, my God, dude, yes. And he looked at me and he said, it's completely given me faith in rock music again. Because <laughs> that, you know, because at that point, you know, post Kid A, it was like, well, I mean, is is rock over? You know, do we need this anymore? But this album is like, yeah. Mm. <laughs> I mean, two thousand two is also when that really starts to hit. Like the Strokes get hype, but then also Interpol and things like that. So, I mean, this comes from a little bit of a different space. I think one of the reasons it gets a ten, and why some other albums get tens from Pitchfork, is it that it wants to be a masterpiece. It's aiming to be a masterpiece, and it actually 
succeeds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like a lot of the albums that like get highly rated are often like they rarely are aware that they're masterpieces in the same way that this album is like we are going to make a big huge artistic statement and it works. Usually it falls completely flat on its ass. Uh, yeah. I would argue the other album they gave it 10 to, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy, does fall flat on its ass. But but this album gets it and it, it's like like the sheer power of that impact is huge. And I would also even argue, like even now today, I would still think it's a 10 by virtue of the fact that I like almost every song on here and it works together as a piece extremely well. I think that the biggest thing is the score to me doesn't matter. What matters is it reflects this, like it is an ambitious album that is very much making a point to be an ambitious album. And you hear it through every step of this album. So yeah, in terms of 10 being a reflection of that, like I get it, but in some ways the score really doesn't matter. It's just one of the things that it's become famous for, which is kind of unfortunate because again, like that almost was the thing that turned me off of like listening to this album. And so when I finally did, I was like, holy shit, this is really, really good, you know? So yeah. I was just going to say, I think that, you know, it probably doesn't deserve a 10. Whereas, so like, OK Computer, I feel is kind of a similar album to this album. It's, you know, it's not as hard or whatever, but it's the same basic concept album structure. But I just think that Tom York as a lyricist and the the complex concepts that are presented in OK Computer, the time that it came out, and this feeling of, you know, technology isolating us and and the desperation of, of life in the modern world or whatever, those themes and that sort of concept kind of elevates OK Computer. Although people, I've been seeing people talking shit about it online, so maybe I'm out of touch. Oh, it's just because it's a really well-regarded album. And anytime that there's something that gets like universal acclaim, people are going to talk shit about it, you know? Yeah. But whereas this album, I feel like there are some limitations just because the people that made it are maybe a little too nerdy to strike that sort of universal human experience sort of elevation. You know what I mean? Just, you know, like some of the lyrics are... Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit of like an indie band made good, you know? And and there is like a lot of the songs do have... I know you said it doesn't sound like post-hardcore, but I do hear the post-hardcore in it a bit, like... There are some songs where I'm like, yeah, this is a kind of music that comes out of the 90s, like even though right. it is like elevated here. Mm. Like I hear a little bit of Drive Like Jehu or or whatever their name is, who I like a lot, but who's another like post-hardcore band. But um, yeah, it, it feels like that era of like very weirdly tuned guitars, weird time signatures and kind of like proggy song structure, but like blown out to this like technicolor grandiosity mm-hmm. that the actual scene of post hardcore was too punk to do <laughs> they weren't they didn't allow themselves to do it yeah like shudder to think is not gonna it's not sincere enough to do this no no yeah brainiac is not going to make this album no it's like the end of uh days of being wild there's that like spoken word yeah mm-hmm. that's yeah. like so like something like that is just like a taste call you know like that's just in poor taste uh in my humble opinion you know like no one's ever gonna hear that and think oh hell yeah oh i like, heard that and said oh hell yeah so <laughs> okay well <laughs> I do like the spoken word at the end of um what is it homage? Oh yeah. There's like somebody speaking in the left ear. I like that. 
Let's get to song by song, okay? Because uh, sure. we brought up a lot of it, and we we've sort of summarized the general. So yeah, this album got like they ended up downgrading it to you know third best album of two thousand two, and Ryan Schreiber who wrote that like snippet sort of you know set the expectation if he's like but he kind of framed it as like a gateway album into like greater things which i i don't know if that's true but that is mm. it was this kind of like this is the past and yankee hotel foxtrot or whatever is the future God. which is like <laughs> silly to me but well what's also so funny about that is by the time this came out i was already like into sonic youth and and those other bands so it was like it felt less like a gateway and more of like a, an evolution of some kind mm -hmm. or like a, finally a different take on this sound. <laughs> I haven't heard an album that sounds exactly like this. So yeah, I was a little surprised by the combination of things. So I think that's one of the interesting things about it and, and why it appealed to me a lot. Well, the mix and the production, like you were saying, it truly is like possibly like my favorite rock production. It's stunning. It's like the guitars are impossibly loud. Absolutely. And yet the vocals still sit on top of them somehow without it sounding like pop rock or something. Like it is just truly huge. There's so many guitars. It's all stacked. There's so many elements stacked up yeah. mm -hmm. that should be burying everything. And instead it kind of sounds like a hurricane that you still get these like great lead melodies and vocal melodies on top of like just cutting through so clearly it's kind of a wonder because i imagine based on what i'm hearing and based on what these guys are like there's probably like dozens of tracks on these songs <laughs> being mixed together to make mm -hmm. this this is yeah. definitely like an album nerds album like when I listen to individual songs, I don't enjoy them as much as when I'm listening to it in the context of the album, if that makes sense. I mean, I enjoy individual songs, but you know what I mean? Like it, but no, sure. for sure. Yeah. 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 Even though it's like it, the, most of the album is pretty heavy, like it does flow well. I think that's also the thing that is like, you know, like because they had a similar kind of like British mod revival aesthetic that like the Strokes and Interpol had a bit too. I think there was just some of that in the air at the time although they said it was kind of just coincidental because they all worked like office jobs and that's just how they dressed anyway for them right so but they were they were like the who though you know they were destroying yeah. their shit and you know playing really really loud live and making rock operas basically. yeah they mentioned the who actually in one of their interviews so that's a good i've never been as into the who as a lot of bands that i, I like oh I, I actually can't stand the who. i had a big who phase when I was a kid. I loved The Who when I was like 16. Yeah, I guess that's the age for it. Led Zeppelin all the way though. Well, just like just like Tommy. Yeah, I was a yeah. Pink Floyd kid, we, you know. I was Pink Floyd first and then the rest followed. Right. Makes sense. But yeah, because you know, you hear the strokes or whatever and like a lot of the guitar parts are so like meh, 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 you know, or like even Spoon. It's pretty simple. It's not like complex musically. So this is kind of the flip side of that. It, you know, it's like a heavy band, but... There is quite a bit of complexity there, and it is designed to reward. Even though there's like an immediate element to it, it's not like immediate pop music. It definitely rewards like repeated listens and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are complexities to its arrangement and structure that are very rewarding while still like one of the things I really love about this album. And I think, you know, when I heard about it, I was like, oh, this sounds like some arty, boring masterpiece. I don't want to touch it. I think what 
a lot of people don't get across about the album is that it's extremely catchy. Yes. Yeah. It's just like, it's a very like hooky poppy album. I'm sorry. I, I have a, I'm mm-hmm. getting buzzed. <laughs> I'll be right back. It's okay. We might actually, um, we could just take like a five minute break. Uh, so just so, you know, to go to the bathroom, get some water and stuff. Uh, yeah. I'll wait for Max to get back, but I think I can do some editing magic around, <laughs> around that. So. Sorry, I I should have picked a better time to start chewing on carrots, but no, chew away. This is good. Uh, AS- and what's up, Doc? AMSR, ASMR. One thing that I should mention, by the way, since we we have a habit of mentioning how much we hate his writing, um, is oh, I saw this. Yeah. Is Robert Criscow gave this album a bomb? I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is like in you know a long line of Criscow being wrong about everything or even when he's gives good scores to albums that he likes he man being terrible about it <laughs> yeah manages to be incredibly creepy he's just the worst and he's awful and bad yeah any like sort of like indie ish album that's not like a mainstream artist he, he just does not consider worth his time i feel like this is also again i think too earnest and nerdy for him like i, I think he wouldn't be caught dead acknowledging a band like this Oh, I'm sorry. He gave it a dud rating, not a bomb. That's pathetic, honestly. You know? It is. Mm -hmm. It comes from a culture where try hard is an insult. You know? What's so fucking wrong about trying hard, you know? Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm. But yeah, now that we've gotten insulting Robert Criscow out of the way, Mm -hmm. our first track on, I guess it was originally the UK version Probably re-releases start with this track because the version I have does, which I think is on Spotify as well. It's Invocation. And this is like a a short interlude. It actually like, I can sort of see where I was like assuming that they were like Godspeed you Black Emperor just from this intro because it starts with guitar feedback. Yeah. And then there's like a very like plaintive sounding piano riff. You know, it just like starts... And then we have like a woodwind and string section like introducing. It's like, um, you know what? It, it feels so one. I find it very funny that James and I have the most experience with this band and this album and neither of us knew this song. I still have never heard it. I'm listening to it right now. It has the vibes of, believe it or the Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. It has like radio static and like little acoustic instruments. I don't see how, uh, how another track could add... It was there that I saw you is such a perfect album opener, I feel. I agree. I think it takes away. It flows right in. I think it's I think it's fine. It's just a sh- It flows right in, but there's something to be said about like hitting play and immediately getting hit by it was there that I saw you. Like I think it's one of the most effective Tuning openers. Tuning in with the radio static beats. It's perfect. I uh, well, th- they sort of fade into each other, but yeah. I mean it's interesting because I'm not sure what the original intended sequence was because it was released differently. Like in, when it came out in the UK, it was released with this track at the beginning. So mm-hmm. I have no idea 
That might have been an Interscope thing. I mean, famously, the Soft Bulletin, the U.S. version and U.K. version had different tracks on them. Mm -hmm. And, like, they also had, like, a bunch of remixes that it's like, why the fuck is this even on the album? Yeah, the Race for the Prize, like, other mix. It's like, this is the same song. It's such a mess of a now. Slow Motion is not on the U.S. version and Buggin' is not on the U.K. version. Like, it, it doesn't make any sense. Like, re-releases of the album have, you know, corrected that, but it might be the same thing with this one. But anyway, like, so this might have been the original intention to have this be the first track. It's fine. It's a nice, like, you can hear the budget that they're working with with this album, you know, with an actual, like, there are actual strings in this album. I mean, you don't notice them in, like, every song, but they're definitely there. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. There is a bit of a... Given that this band has a whole Lord of the Rings thing going on a little bit, I, I can see where it comes from from that angle. But yeah, that's basically it with Infigation. I can definitely see where it comes from. And it's not, you know, Madonna had a similar thing going on and a lot of their later albums will have it. But here it feels weird to me because... So it was there that I saw you, if if we can move on, is like... yes. A fairly it's a fairly simple song, you know, it's a Pixies loud, quiet, loud thing. But so much of what sells it, like moving towards what Liz, you were saying about how you don't necessarily like some of these songs on their own as much as in the album. It was there that I saw you is made is a good song made ten times better by the fact that it opens the album. Mm. Yes. I mean I think this album starts at the top. I think this might actually be my favorite track on the album. Oh wow. Okay. I mean I, it's a great song. Like it's nuts how hard it goes. You know, when I was listening to it I realized it has the same structure as uh Judgment Bolt by Death's Dynamic Shroud. It's that big A B A with the massive like wandering the desert development section in the middle right that's completely separated from like two banger parts on either side but in those banger parts it's specifically you know i mean it comes out with this massive the guitar is and drums are kind of uh, ducking each other in the mix and it's just like riding on that crash cymbal so hard it's just it's that explosive energy that the that the pitchfork review is talking about and then you get the first drum roll and it's apparently the only drum like fill that you hear on the album yeah the the like yeah yeah it's pretty noticeable it's always been that way all the way back to like richter scale madness that's how they fill which is sick yeah. you know like to me that's like a shoegaze kind of you know just sped up you know oh yeah yeah just big 64th notes but if you listen they're like five layers of guitar doing glissandos like over the drum roll between the explosions of chords so you get Mm -hmm. this like there's all like this big mechanical like beast lumbering through a forest destroying the trees as it walks
yeah, when this song hits, there's, you know, there's like a fairly si- a quiet guitar rift, and then it kind of just explodes in your face, and that kind of captures how the old, whole album feels. I think the interesting thing here is a lot of songs in this album do actually have kind of a, a loud, quiet, loud thing, and this one goes kind of almost into like an instrumental where there's the guitar going, yeah. you know, which it's is... Very Pink Floyd. Yeah, it's a little bit of a similar melody, actually, to Invocation, so that's why I connect them. But it also, like, it doesn't feel like a complete song. It feels like a song fragment, and I think the the lyrics kind of get into that feeling of, like, it just feels like it's building to something that it never reaches, which is fine. I mean, I think that's a good feeling, but it's interesting. By the way, the um, the older version of the thetrailofdead.com they had like annotated lyrics for this album. Right. And what it says for this song is, Keeley had intended to conjure up the intoxicating thrill of living in Austin, Texas in the mid-90s before America had gone to shit. <laughs> um, but I, I think this is kind of about like being in your 20s, you know, having like strong feelings for somebody, but the nature of the moment is like, is very transient. And there's this, like almost when you're looking back this giantness to this feeling because because it it's almost like this lost reality or something i don't know how to it's like being young and drunk and running through a field at night and then thinking about some wonderful youthful memory several years later like man you know what went wrong what became of you you know <laughs> yeah what what happened to that feeling? It's very wistful. The other thing that's interesting to me is like, so coming into it after the context of the first two albums, it almost feels like a parody of And You Will Knows by The Trail of Dead because all of their songs have this, or previously would be like these weird, like loud, quiet sections. It's either like you're either going like balls out or you are doing these plaintive guitar lines and mixed meter. And this song is like, what if we did the most of both and put them in the same song. <laughs> That's interesting. That midsection, you can also hear that that post-rock influence, I feel. Like, it sounds like Pink Floyd doing post-rock. When I first heard this album, when I heard these first two tracks, I was like, okay, I, I see why I thought that they were post-rock. Because there are a little bit of those elements. And th- there is that, like, you know... If nothing else, like the Godspeed You Black Emperor, like the the scale of everything feels very epic. And that is one mm-hmm. thing that this, this album shares with that. It leans on the crash a lot throughout the album. Just like riding on the crash through a verse of a song is like a great way to make it feel explosive and over the top. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of like closed hi-hat. We're in a verse now. It's just like... Bush, bush, bush. Yeah, it's well, it's a feeling of like perpetual motion, Mm. like one thing kind of goes to the next thing, goes to the next thing. And it just it's kind of this, you know, it keeps hitting you. Although like a lot of songs have interesting interlude parts to them, too. But the reason why this song sticks out to me the most or, you know, why I liked it the most is I think partly is just because I could understand what the lyrics are about. (laughs) It's a little more direct, like the the emotion of like conveyed by the because some of the other lyrics, like there's a little bit of the Tori Amos boys for Pele like era (laughs) Tori Amos, like, yeah, where it's like it's emotional, but it's it's abstract a little bit. I also remember like in the CD book, all of the songs, the lyrics are in the book, but they were all in different fonts and some of them were unreadable. (laughs) That's funny. Uh, So it was like extra obfuscated. 
I wasn't at the time and am still not aware of the majority of the lyrics on the album. No. And it was something when I would read Pitchfork, I would always be almost confused because a lot of album reviews, it's like, why are they just reviewing the lyrical content? Like, who the fuck cares? Yeah. Thank you. Yes, okay. I hate that. I hate that so much. I'm the one lone <laughs> lyrics liker of the bunch. Max is also not a lyrics person. I'm not, no. What I would say is that good lyrics can really tie a song together to me, and bad lyrics can ruin it for Absolutely. Me. You know, it's like I love Bob Dylan, and it's not because, you know, the chord progressions are good. But it's something like this I definitely didn't really care uh, what they were saying and every I guess oh go ahead yeah I guess I mention it because the lyrics specifically but as time went on I wondered what went wrong and I wondered what became of yeah, you that's like such that a good was hook that's perfect yeah. yeah and that is the lyric that like really stuck out to me even the first time I heard it like it, it's it's very direct you could almost call it <laughs> I know they apparently hated being called emo but there is like no but an element of that post hardcore is a branch of emo and it's definitely in there it's almost like a Coldplay lyric. It's like universally, you know, like who doesn't have someone in their life that they think that about, you know? Right. Yeah. Well, and that makes it feel not pretentious because, mm-hmm. you know, it contrasts with everything else. And like, it's not about know. their lore. <laughs> yeah. I, although I will say, I never think of this band as a lyrics band. I think especially, I love Worlds Apart. Worlds Apart has pretty terrible lyrics, <laughs> like throughout. But it kind of doesn't matter because... I know people talk about like how Conrad, Kaylee, and, and James Reese are like terrible singers. I think they're great because they're extremely emotive. Like they're very good at conveying the tone of a song, whether you understand what they're saying or not. Yeah, no, I, I think it's weird that people say that they're bad singers. I mean, they're, you know, like like relative ways. He is like really striving to try to sing that one, but like for the most part. But I love but it. That's what makes it so powerful. That's yeah. what makes it good. Yeah. yeah. It's like Harry Nelson on uh, the beginning of the Pussycats album, yeah. John Lennon produced, and he's singing um, Many Rivers to Cross, and he famously rips his vocal cords during that recording and his voice was never the same Mm -hmm. after it but you can hear him you know it's such a drag you can hear it happening it's like fuck yes emotion as far as conveying like the emotions of the music i think they do a great job yeah but yeah so the next song is another morning stoner and this is probably i guess i think this is one of their most listened to songs on spotify which is so weird to me because it's one of their like least immediate you know, it's a very moody song. They had TV commercials for it, so... I guess that would do it. <laughs> yeah, this had a music video as well. It did. I will say, so I think this is a very close to perfect album. There's two things I dislike about it. And one of them is this feels like a weird track too to me. I, because it was there that I saw you go so hard and Baudelaire goes so hard. And this song is very mid-tempo. To me, it always felt like it should be later in the album. It's definitely, this was the single, so it's going to be track two, is always right. the vibe that I got. It feels less intentional than a lot of the other sequencing. To be honest, like when I first heard the album, a lot of these songs blended together to me. So I, I don't know. I mean, I originally thought, you know, well, we can get to it, but I originally didn't like the ending tracks as much. And, you know, it took a while to get into those. But 
I don't know. I, I think it works here. I, I feel like those two songs kind of go into each other. Um, yeah, they're, they're kind of similar. Like they have a, that similar yeah. sort of structure and you also have that is also in the song. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have like a, a spindly, again, like post-rock, proggy guitar rift kind of building up and then... It's a weirdly tense song because I feel like the guitar work is extremely laconic, but the drums are going really hard still. Yes, yeah. Like under it. So it has this kind of like uneasy tension to it. I, I especially love like when it kind of crescendos in the bridge, like the bridge is my favorite part of the song because it goes into this, it takes this tension and really like expands it melodically in a wonderful way. Yeah, like I was saying earlier, it was hearing the verse for the first time and all of those weird seventh chords and all of these crazy overtones that the guitar is producing and just like the drums are just going so hard, just like you were saying. And that really does create that tension. It's almost like a classical music trick, you know what I mean? To mm-hmm. use those sort of overtones between the notes to create this just bed of guitar sound. And then, you know, and it's funny, we were talking about the lyrics. I actually made notes of the lyrics here because they're so ridiculous. But it's like, are you asleep? Are you in a dream? The copper shades of a morning, distant lights beckon and fade, unwritten songs of another day. I mean, that's so like Sid Barrett or something. You know what I mean? It's just like super, yeah. super. If you just read them on the page, it's one thing, but the way he sings them and just the, for the general tone of music, it works really well. It's like troubadour music or something. Copper shades of a morning. I'm sorry to say, but the the title uh, yeah, is, is apparently just a reference to an erection <laughs> morning, which was. is I've never heard somebody call it a, a stoner. stoner. Yeah, I don't know why, but oh, yeah, wow. apparently it is. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was about you know like someone in their mid twenties that never got off the pot. pot. You know, yeah, yeah, exactly. Apparently, another inspiration for this song is having an ex girlfriend who was very Christian and sort of having a realizing that they would be kind of driven apart from you know her being very christian and him being very atheist yeah so there's i guess that element this also has strings in it by the way we, you mentioned classical yeah. music there's a string section that comes in they go mm-hmm. you know but yeah you know this is another way which the album sounds expensive <laughs> and it's a weird single but it served its purpose as a single because it made a lifelong fan out of me you know as my introduction to all of trail of dead mm-hmm. it told me everything that i needed to know yeah it's also like an early peek at so so you know the first song is very much like their massive loud side and also their like proggy intricate side there's another part of the band that gets explored even more in the next album of that they are a jangle pop band. Um, Interesting. I could see that. 
And like, I feel like this is a, this and relative ways are the songs that I feel like start to really events that. Yeah. You know, these like jangly elements of like, you know, a very clear single coil kind of guitar sound without that much distortion amidst a bunch of like sound and fury is such a really cool texture that a lot of people don't do. And they're also able to achieve that like massive ballroom dance epicness you know, in that section before the the final bridge and chorus, you know the, yeah, when it repeats, it repeats over and that's what I was going to mention. It builds and builds and builds, and and there's a string section that goes, you know, like is is building. So it really, yeah, creates that. I mean, that's a real easy way to, as the YouTuber Adam Neely says, repetition legitimizes. Mm. The more you repeat something especially as you're building and like the drums are hitting like they are you know it really feels ratchets up your anticipation for what whatever is coming it's a real good musical technique for doing that yeah i really love again this is sort of a a trail of dead trick but like these songs that are just we are going to hang on this riff and just kind of vibe with it for a while They're they're able to do that without sounding you brought up like Bob Dylan before and I think of like there's people like Bob Dylan or Bright Eyes who make these songs that are just the same chords over and over. <laughs> two th- two artists that Max hates, by that the I hate. way. Oh, because no. they use the same chords over and over again without well, I don't like Bright Eyes, but I don't mind Bright Eyes. We're gonna do Bright Eyes eventually. Look, one of these days Bob Dylan will reach inside of you and touch you just the way that you need to be. Um, just uh, that sounds just awful and terrifying <laughs> i am gonna touch you it sounds like exactly as i intended uh but <laughs> all that all that to say the trail dead have a way of doing it in a way that feels like almost like in a more portis head way where it feels like a mood like expanding outward and encompassing more of the space as it repeats it builds without necessarily having any dynamic shifts in a way that i find like mm-hmm. kind of wild yeah it's a pretty brick walled album <laughs> yeah but I should mention at the end when the the what is forgiveness is just a dream. There's a little bit of a back and forth between I presume Conrad Keeley and um, Jason Reese. Jason Reese, yeah. Which you know makes me think of Fugazi. I think actually Neil Bush does most of the backing vocals live. Oh, okay. Because I know Reese had some of the songs, and then Neil Bush has some of the other ones. But mm. there's a little bit of a Fugazi, you know, like back and forth between two vocalists. Uh, it's probably the most like specific thing that i think of as being like emo on this album i guess mm-hmm. it's also uh it's one of my favorite tricks in pop rock music where they're playing the music from the verse but they're forcing a new melody on top of it sometimes it's the chorus you know like the end of all star for example or the end of my own worst enemy by lit also does this which i think are two like yeah. perfect pop songs i love that but part. yeah you know when they when they yeah. bring in like the verse vocals on top of like the chorus chord progression or, or vice versa it's the same thing in this song where you get that it's just the the music from the verse almost unaltered but now it's this what is forgiveness yeah yeah sick
And we have a little ambient accordion outro, which uh, I like the outros on this album. I do too. Yeah, I mean, that it sells it. I think the interludes yeah. are interesting. Speaking of, uh, I think the next track has the best outro, but the next track is Baudelaire, uh, of course. Baudelaire fucks. Named after the poet, and it is written by Neil Bush, who was the bassist. Mm-hmm. Oh. So this song, he has one other song on this album, so he's the one who sings. But yeah. Baudelaire fucks. I love this song. It goes so yeah, hard. So this reminds me more of that garage rock revival strokes specifically black rebel motorcycle club i don't know if you got if you ever listened to them okay. but like yeah, yeah, uh, yeah i don't know it's got that sort of like definite like garage rock vibe yeah i think both of his songs do it all but it also has like so the last couple of albums also amidst all the post hardcore jangly nonsense would occasionally have the punk song you know the richter scale madness song and this feels like an ode to that although it's also it's like a classic rock song right he's doing an elvis voice but it's such a caterwauling song. Like it's the the whole song feels like it's tumbling over itself. It has a little bit of the. I mean the. Uh, I assume that saxophone or or brass, like the brass section, that's mirroring the guitar. Yeah, I don't know what it is. <laughs> Maybe it's just trumpet, or I, I I don't know exactly. But there's some kind of brass section just mirroring the the main guitar riff, which kind of gives it a more funky tune. But yeah, it's. Everything is way too amped up and anxious feeling to be like a Strokes thing. There's something very settled about like the Strokes or whatever, but this has this like very anxious, jittery energy to it that um, Mm -hmm. this song just has a lot of like this feeling of perpetual motion. Like it's it's pushing you ahead, if that makes sense. Yeah, 100%. When I was like a teenager, I wasn't super into it because it didn't have any awesome chords that I loved so much and were so important to me. No, it is is fairly normal quarterly. But it does have like those sweet, chromatic passing tones in the main riff that yeah that's the part that the brass mirrors and what it does and and liz it was what you were just talking about is it it's really starting to reveal the kind of machinery of rock music that drives the entire album that's that it's like being you know lost in the ocean and being pummeled with waves that's sort of what the entire album feels like and it is like a like a giant machine with giant cogs turning and nothing can stop that riff from coming back you know even if you didn't want it to well here it comes it's just the the cog turning once more sort of grinding you up in the machinery of the album yeah there's it's like an there's something inevitable about the song it's yeah yeah perfect point in the album for like a more simple just straight ahead like we're gonna hit you with this you know because the the first couple songs are a little bit especially another morning stoner is a very like spindly song it's it's nice to have something that's just you Mm -hmm. know baudelaire is more or less where i feel like the sequencing really locks in and like from here 
basically to the end, with like one exception we'll talk about eventually, I feel like the album just kind of is constantly amping up for me. Yeah, the the ending part with the brass where it goes do 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 and you know crazy drum fills again and then it immediately stops and there's this just cacophony of voices mm-hmm. that's like my, my absolute favorite like outro on the because like the voices just kind of take over and it's very like sudden and kind of surreal. <laughs> And then you have like a little like slightly unsettling uh, guitar ambience uh, at the end too. That's like like a looped pedal. Like the ambience at the end of this track really helps it too for me. Yeah, even at its loudest, you know, we'll, we'll get into it with homage, which immediately starts like at, a, at an eleven. There's always something atmospheric about the music, and I, I think that also just speaks to the production and the fact that they finally have a budget. <laughs> Yeah. That they can put all of these atmospheric touches in. I think that that stuff really adds a lot to me. And it's like one reason why, like, when you don't know quite what you're going to get at the end of the track and be like, Mm -hmm. and like the end sections can be their own little like micro melodies or whatever. I I think that's like really neat. And it, I feel like in this track in particular, like the outro is just so good. It lends a, um, a sense of intentionality to the fact that they wanted to make an epic cinematic concept album, I guess would be the word. Mm -hmm. Yeah, cinematic is a word that they used actually in their interview with Pitchfork to kind of describe the feeling that they were going for with these ambient things, which the the funny thing is that, you know, it has this like looping guitar like sound that's like, you know, it makes me think of the beginning of like, um, What's that? The the Radiohead song. I'm on a roll. You know, like the uh, oh, the tourist. What is it called? Or no, I'm... Lucky, Lucky, Lucky. Yeah, the beginning of Lucky, which has like a guitar mm-hmm. feedback <laughs> kind of sound <laughs> at the beginning in the looping pedal. Yeah. God. But it like repeats, and you kind of start zoning out and being like, okay, is the next track gonna be ambient? And then it's just like, yeah, with the next track. God, it's so good. Immediately with the guy screaming, homage. I love homage so much. Yeah, so this one is a Jason Reese song, mm-hmm. and apparently it's an homage to the band Unwound. And uh, the webpage says, to his knowledge, they have never returned the compliment. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a funny thing because it doesn't really sound like Unwound. No, it doesn't sound it like It sounds Unwound. mostly like Annual Nose by the Trail of Dead. To me, it sounds like... <laughs> this sounds like a punk song. It sounds like Nirvana, I think. I think it sounds like Nirvana is like... Yeah. The noisier... Yeah. What's that track on Nevermind? The... Come on! people now smile oh territorial pissings yeah yeah, yeah. yes territorial, territorial pissings, pissings yeah. yeah like it definitely has that kind of american like not post-punk but like post space punk like hard yeah i didn't really like tracks like this when i was a teenager i used to kind of like be more into the ballads and and shit and not be into the super hard tracks but it's this one really grew on me yeah i'll mention it later but i was a big pearl jam fan so it's kind of like <laughs> weirdly like listening to this like there are moments that like 
put me back into makes me feel legitimized for my Pearl Jam being my favorite band when I was a kid. <laughs> I also just, I love the, I heard your voice on my radio part. I was just about to mention that. Yeah, because yeah. when it accelerates out of that, it's like, mm-hmm. fuck yes, into that big noisy, like, noise solo or whatever that is. There's like a harmonica that's like going through distortion or something. It's very weird. Oh, it's so good. It's so sick. But I love it because it's not slow. It's just quieter. And you have these great, like, rolls on the snare going in and out. And it's like, I, I love the drum work on this album in general, but like the way that they specifically mark out the sections of a song with like pretty radically different rhythms and drum patterns like really works for me and I think is a big part of what keeps the songs distinct. Yeah, because it's not it's not a superficial thing. It doesn't sound like, you know, just superficial genre mashing. It's not like I'm going from the hi-hat to the crash now. Right, yeah. It's a it's a fully different yeah, beat. Yeah. It says on the webpage that they often play the song live, which makes sense because it is like it's a pretty simple song musically, but it is just like a blah, you know, like that like level of emotion. Plus the the middle sections where it slows down and he's like whispering. So it does have that 90s loud quiet loud thing which like i think this in the last track they're not like necessarily musically complex tracks but they feel just like pure you know you can tell that this is a band that like smashes <laughs> their, their shit mm-hmm. yeah they're not that musically complex but they're still more complicated than like a pixie song right oh yeah yeah so there's st- there's a way that even though it's using like kind of familiar dynamic tricks it still feels more kind of massive and epic in a way that well, and if i could be so bold i would say it's way more entertaining to listen to than i like the pixies but i get it no, I, I like the Pixies. I love the Pixies. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying, you know, it's like if you could produce something that sounds like this, and I feel like until it was 2000 to 2002, you couldn't really get a sound like this, you know, from a band writing songs like this, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this is a point that we talked about a lot, but just like the access of recording technology improved drastically in the late 90s, like especially like a lot of things became more accessible for like, especially, you know, digital audio workstation, like Mm -hmm. samplers and like a lot of that stuff got vastly better, like right at the end of the 90s and the early 2000s. And I think a lot of records at the time like reflect that. So there is this kind of audiophile nature. So in this song, not only do we have that you, we have the the weird harmonica distorted thing that Max mentioned. There's like a piano playing the part, like mirroring the parts too. You don't even necessarily hear it. It's really chaotic, yeah. yeah. There's almost like a, a swell maps quality to it where it seems like they're just using every instrument in the room. Well, and that's something that Tech and I really, really loved and something that, you know, the reason why I loved Radiohead and all that whole, that sort of post-Britpop thing is that you would listen to The Man Who by Travis even, you know, with all of its corny songs. You would still hear all these little details. Like every time you listen to it, you would hear a new sound or a new instrument that you never noticed before that was, you know, doubling apart, Liz, just like what you were just talking about. Exactly, yeah. And that's like all over this album, even though it's like 
super loud and kind of hard and you know but it's still they're still bringing in pianos and distorted harmonicas and shit to you know it's not just a straight ahead rock album yeah Mm -hmm. i mean i I think that's a a thing that has come up a lot for me over the course of doing this uh podcast is like a lot of what i was into in indie rock i mean i liked songs obviously i liked singing and and songwriting and stuff but like a lot of it what i was interested in was the recording techniques and like what they did sonically and it was kind of like my way into electronic music i guess but just like the unconventional strange ways that things were juxtaposed together to create like a sound that you really hadn't heard before. And I, I do think this album succeeds in that because, you know, so many of these songs, they're heavy, they're rock songs. Like some of them are more complex than others, but like these last two are not like the most complex songs in the world compared to, you know, no. like okay computer or whatever, but it's the, it's the way that it's, recorded and presented on this album that is is still very unique well and context i think does a lot for it too right so like these two songs coming between or like leading into something like how near how far i feel like also grants it more atmosphere than it would if it was on you know the first album where there are just a bunch of punk songs and it would it makes sense 100 percent. speaking of which yeah so this song ends with a bunch of guitar feedback and then it goes into How Near How Far, which is a more spindly, slower song. It's like one of my favorites. One of my favorites. Absolutely. Yeah. I love this style of like spindly, rolling, almost like post-punky vibes. Like it's it's so good. It has the same sort of epic ballroom. Whenever I say that, I'm thinking specifically of the anime Berserk. Yeah. And they have the big ball scene in berserk where they're all dancing at the like royal ball Mm -hmm. it's like that kind of energy you know the you can just see you know people in period costumes just you know in some big elaborate there's something grand about it yes grand definitely you know what i'm i'm getting from some of these like which i i was getting a little bit with the middle sections and homage the quiet sections but also the beginning guitar riff i'm getting a little bit of like slint yeah uh from it like a little bit of that like slightly ominous like kind of slowly moving guitar riffy i don't know how to explain that yeah slim would never be this emotive but it definitely has that sort of like intersecting guitar lines creating something that is both like minimalist but very energetic i also uh yeah i'm sorry i was just gonna say that the vocals on this song specifically i feel are like this reminded me more of gotta buy voices than almost any other part on the album especially the way that he cadences the last part of those verses that always left me dry there's like this kind of drunken quality to the way that he's singing it really reminds me of bob pollard maybe that's just me (laughs) i i think maybe it reminds you of bob pollard because i think this is the best vocal melody on the album (laughs) and bob pollard is really good at doing that I think I see what you mean. Uh, by the way, I find that line really funny. I assume he's referencing PJ Harvey, like Dry, the song mm. Dry by PJ Harvey. But it's just funny to hear like a, a cis man say, it's always left me dry, given yeah. what that song is about. But yeah, I think the um, the vocal melody, especially the looking back in time, like just that like is... It kind of feels like a center of this mm-hmm. album, which it kind of is the center of this For album. Sure. But like, yeah, 
there's something to it which just feels like and there's also like a piano they have a piano that's just hitting the same note over again it's going dee, 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 like it's high up so it, it gives us this like gravitas again it's this feeling of building but it's we've kind of hit like a central point where like it isn't just this like guttural like release of emotions but there's also this sort of plaintive like sad but you're still sort of working through the intense emotions of the last few songs There's definitely, it feels like there is a pivot point or like a, a center, a heart, you know, pardon the pun here of uh, how near, how far and hard in the hand of the matter feel, always feel like this sort of like fraught core to the album between like the beginning and the end. Well, there's that real kind of like somber, classical inspired interlude in the middle too that once again sort of leads to that big ballroom ending. I, I feel like that OK Computer Syndrome really manifests itself in this track you can you know at at this point we're not doing a bunch of accelerating heavy rock songs that this is definitely like okay we're putting this on with this string section in the middle you know uh we're doing the same thing that mozart did we just have different tools kind of mindset right uh like really wanting to create a masterpiece album like is this track when capital a art music yes exactly because i mean this track wouldn't really fit you know it like doesn't really make sense out of context i don't think no i think it is definitely better in the context of this album i'd say that about pretty much every song but maybe relative ways is about the same but the speaking of capital a art music on the the annotated lyrics site, it says, this is a, another Conrad Keeley uh, song. He says, after reading the book entitled Maxfield Parish and Sue Lewin, The Make-Believe World, Conrad became fascinated with the relationship between Parrish, who is one of his favorite painters, had with his muse. So <laughs> the lyrics are referencing a painter named Maxfield Parrish, who I've never heard of, and the relationship of him with his muse, apparently. So... I love these annotations because they, they go in and in on all these like cultural references that the lyrics just don't really do. Well, okay, so oil painted eyes, I can see <laughs> on canvases of time painted. But a eyes. lot of times, you know, a lot of times as an artist, you may be influenced by something or get an idea from something and it might not manifest literally. You know what I mean? It's just mm-hmm. that's that's where the spark came from. Yeah. Or whatever. How near, how far. I mean, that sounds like an unrequited love with uh, your best friend or something you know it's the kind of no for sure but the contrast is extremely funny throughout the annotations yeah it is funny what i see it as being is kind of like a reflective like a sentiment that i think is like the thesis statement of the album which is where did the time go Mm. Mm. okay because i the sentiment of it was there i saw you and source tags and codes both have that element of it i don't know it's like this looking back on time and being like, what the hell happened? You know, what what the hell is all of this kind of feeling? Mm-hmm. But weirdly, the um, 
intermission was put into this uh again this is another track that is not on the the original u.s version of the album it's called life is elsewhere and it's like an ambient track there's like some background reed flute playing and there's someone talking and i think japanese i don't know if it's a sample see i immediately assumed that maybe he's they sampled like a wong kar wai mm. film or something but the voice is actually credited as this person named tetsuya otani Huh. So maybe somebody the band knew, or maybe it's a sample from something. I couldn't find much information about this person, so... Yeah, no, I've again, this is context I've never heard. Yeah, this person... Actually, it sounds like Vaporwave. Oh, perfect. <laughs> it, it sounds like an ambient Vaporwave. Wow. Like, there's somebody talking in Japanese, and there's, like, a slightly ominous, like, you know, like, in the background. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I apologize. I'm still working off the CD version here, but I am super intrigued <laughs> life is elsewhere is sounds like a name of a death dynamic shroud title too it does it does it's pretty close yeah And then we have Heart in the Hand of the Matter. Again, great song. This was, whenever I heard this song when I was a teenager, I thought, this is my favorite, this is the best song I have ever heard in my entire life. Like, to me, the values that I held for rock music when I was 18, this song perfectly represented basically everything that I ever wanted to hear in music. It's just the the epic power of mythology and just the... uh, the apocalyptic themes, you know, because I was super into Muse at the mm-hmm. time. I mean, the ride the apocalypse coming through the city side, fallen angel, yeah. no need to hide. It's like, oh, God, yes, so sick. A reference, by the way, to the movie Fallen Angels by Wong Kar Wai, who is again referenced in a, in a couple tracks from Oh, uh, sick. Yeah. Wow. Fallen Angels, good movie. It's great. Uh, Days of Being Wild is going to be another reference later on. I like this song a lot. What I really love is the verse chord progression is one of my favorites I've ever heard because it's so wild. It's like an eight chord cycle where it seems like it's constantly shifting the axis of where it wants the melody to go Mm -hmm. without feeling like terribly unnatural or like obtuse, which I think is a very difficult trick to pull off. And to contrast that with what is a very like epic, simple chorus I don't know. The construction of the song is really what draws me to it. And I, Normally, you don't like songs constructed like that, Max. So that's interesting. I know. Isn't that weird? But I think it's like the fact that the chorus is as simple as it is helps. Yeah. The chorus, he sounds like Isaac Brock in the chorus in this he song. Does, yeah. He does. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like Modest Mouse. But, you, but see, something that Modest Mouse would never do is have that epic piano octave doubling just smashing a grand piano over all of it you know and that's what this is true yeah that's what the world needed in 2002 as as far as i'm concerned <laughs> we needed someone to just go boom and that's what the world needs today frankly well that's what destinamic shrouds here for you know yeah <laughs> i didn't hear this in 2002 so this is what i need in 2022 <laughs> and you know this song also it always reminded me of a song from the Herzog Zwei soundtrack. Interesting for Sega Genesis. For the Sega oh, wow. Genesis. Yeah, there's a song called There Is No Time to Lose from that. Just the way that the chords kind of move. It's very similar to Max, what you were talking about, the, that eight chord chord progression, the way that it sort of 
pushes the melody in unexpected places. Even back then, I remember listening to it and being like, Tech, dude, there's this song on, on in, in the game Herzog Zwei. Like, it, it's so similar to this. But I don't know, that might just be some strange neural connection that I have. Knowing these guys, I wouldn't be shocked if they like unconsciously were drawing from a game they played as kids, you know? Yeah. It's probably a coincidence, but it's just, I don't know, it's just one of those things where it's like a unique element to the music that I feel exists in both of those songs. else like if something melodically reminds you of something else uh oftentimes especially when you're younger those two things can become inherently connected to each other for sure regardless yeah of now 20 years were... has passed so it's yeah. just like a part of my brain now and you can't yeah get it it's, out. it's permanently tied <laughs> it's like when you mishear lyrics and mm -hmm. there's a okay on the james blake this is my favorite lyric that i've ever misheard on the james blake album the self-titled album there's like a a acapella track where he's singing it's kind of like an Imogen Heap type thing and there's a lyric I don't know what he says but it sounds like he says cue ball take the bus <laughs> okay <laughs> and I'm like and so yeah every time I hear that song I was like cue ball take the bus like talking about a bald person yeah he's like I thought he's derisively referring to a a bald person which like makes no sense in the context of the song which then makes it funny cue ball take the bus you know, that just happened, like, just a couple weeks ago, uh, when Tech was in town, we were driving around, we were listening to um, Transatlantic Drawl by Radiohead, the amnesiac B-side. Mm -hmm. Oh, oh, you right. Know, okay. I was yeah. born for your magazine. Yeah. And the end of that song, my entire life, I always thought it was, I'm in a tunnel, I'm in a tunnel, I'm in a tunnel. And I'm, like, singing it, and Tech's like, what are you saying? I'm like, does, isn't that what he says? Like, I'm I'm in a tunnel. He's like, no, it's at the end of the tunnel, like the light at the end oh. of the. I was like, oh, that makes way more sense. But honestly, I think that mine sounds a little more paranoid and scarier. <laughs> you got to keep it. The way that Tom York sings, he's also like just slurs things together. Yeah, for yeah. sure. It's like his stuff is famously like misheard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, this song, 
It's interesting because it is like, I think when I first heard this album, I was like, is this album going to keep going on the same like energy level? Because this song starts to feel feel like the I'm starting to break down. Like we can't keep we can't keep maintaining this pace throughout the album. Mm, Right. It has like a later in the album feeling to it, which is interesting. And the like the whole millennium era, like very ambitious major label albums like a lot of them are very themed around the apocalypse so this song really fits with that because so many of the lyrics are about the apocalypse that i'm so damned i can't win it is pretty close to like a muse absolution era for sure um like kind of song yeah but it's interesting that you say that because i think there is i think the album's paced really well there is almost a relentless quality even with the like quieter interludes there aren't really slow songs (laughs) No, yeah. It's nonstop until after the laughter. Yeah. Yeah, maybe the last song is the slowest one, which is kind of interesting. But And even that's just mid-tempo, you know? It's not like... Yeah. And so there is like... It's not exhausting, but it is kind of... I kind of love that. I kind of love an album that's able to keep dynamic interest without ever relenting yeah without yeah without ever losing that intensity um although i will say i don't like the next song very much okay no it's neither do i honestly oh i i think it's pretty good i wish it wasn't on the album <laughs> so so just to finish uh, heart in the hand of the matter is a jason reese song by the way yeah and i wanted to read a, a wonderful quote from jason because we need to get this like shit talking on record in here but he said i'm sick of that fucking minimalism the fucking chicago scene tortoise the first tortoise record is kind of cool but when there's 900 fucking bands with their pseudo intellectual approach to their album art i just want to shit (laughs) i mean he's not wrong (laughs) and yeah and then conrad says looks like it's just blurry photographs and sans serif fonts which people interpreted him as insulting interpol so theoretically you could say that they insulted a by proxy interpol and wilco both in the same interview when i was in my early 20s I mean, that's the attitude I had. You know, if I didn't like it, then it fucking sucked. So I definitely empathize with that. No, you know? I mean, that's a teenager. Yeah, that's a common. I mean, that's how I felt, certainly. But I love that they had a platform to just be snotty little bitches. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> but yes, the next song is Monsoon by the same uh, person. As- yeah, so I actually... It's funny, I actually have to listen to this track real quick to remember how it goes. Yeah, because Monsoon isn't isn't hooky like the other ones are. Yeah, this track is Monsoon. It's another Neil Bush uh, song. Oh, this song. This has kind of like a Kraut Rocky sort of yeah. vibing on a on a riff, like... This one really sounds like Black Rebel Motorcycle Club in that scene to me. That is absolutely true. Which is derivative of like 70s stuff. Because like... Right, yeah. He also compares it... Keeley compares it to the band Suicide, which I don't get from like the actual... I kind of get it in the way that it just is a riff. Yeah. For the whole thing, which is every Suicide song is just a riff for the but whole thing. It's not even really a good riff. <laughs> but it's not, a, it's not a good riff, exactly. Because Another Morning Stoner is the one riff for the whole thing. But it's a great riff. However, I will say, when I was a kid, this was like the closest to a skip track that I'm going to find on this album. Listening to it now as an adult, though, I really do love how the guitar is like a massive towering wall that you cannot get around, you know?
the I think the vocals I think he does a good job of selling it. He's like he's really trying to go for it like the for sure. blood, you know, like and I think that's what sells it to me is like I know this isn't as complex as some of the other tracks, but it really see, feels like the band is invested in making this sound as big as possible. So if they're if they care enough about it, then I'm gonna care, you know. It's so funny because I feel like this is the song that finally tips over the edge of too big for me. Like this is where the size of the guitars becomes monotonous rather than overwhelming. Uh, like there, you know, the kind of thing you'll get if you over if you like brick wall compress something and it just becomes like a single smooth sludge. So you can feel your ears turning red as you listen to it or something. It's right. We're, most of the album kind of like avoids that really well. And Monsoon, I feel like, is the one that just tips over into that for me. It, it sounds to me, it's like when I'm working on an album, one of the last things that I do is I listen back to the album, you know, constantly as I'm working on it. And over time, I have favorites and least favorites. And then I try to take my least favorite track that I've made for this album, and then I just spend way more time on it to try to dress it up and make it better. But sometimes just the fundamental songwriting isn't really all that great. So I, I'm, I'm still kind of mid on this track, but I do think that that wall of sound that the guitars achieve is pretty sick. Yeah, uh, this track goes on longer too, but it has an interesting kind of outro end section. There's a some of that post-Rocky guitar riff feedback. It has a completely different section at the end, sort of like in the middle sections with it was there mm. that I saw you or something. So I feel like it references back and it works well within the context of the album because of that. But yeah, it really sounds like it really has like a genuine sort of like post Rocky section there at the end, which I really like before like kind of crescendoing back into the song. And they're really trying to hit you with like the, you know, strings and stuff, which is maybe a little over, a little overbearing in some ways, but um, I feel like it's trying to hit like a narrative point with this album. So if you skip this track, you'll miss that whole part of the That's definitely true. And as a pure riff rock track, sure. For me, it's only detraction is that every other song on this album has at least some harmonic idea or interesting chord change or something that hooks into my own sort of personal taste or desire when I listen to music. And this song just comes off more like a like a Led Zeppelin track from physical graffiti or something. I don't know. Yeah. I'm coming, coming from the same place. But there. just me, just me personally, I don't hate it. Oh, well, it's, I, I like it way more yeah. now. I mean, it's, it's not my favorite track, but I like it. It's the closest to filler. I feel that I hear on the album. Oh, it ends with a bunch of guitar feedback, by the way, speaking of my least favorite track, my least favorite track is the oh. next one. Days of being wild. Oh, really? Man. Days of being wild has two of my favorite vocal hooks on the album. Like the, uh, the round my throat came so close eh. get stuck in my head all the time and then the the outro the the come down don the outro is is so good like it hits so hard yeah the, i like the outro i like the, the gutter punk kind of energy on days of being wild mm-hmm. um like it makes it makes me wish i could have seen it live you know it's like hearing days of being wild is like all right this is probably a song where they start smashing their shit right it's it has that sort of youthful cry in it I also just love the way that that instrumental riff, like dun 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 dun, like that stuttering riff, like sets you up for something that the 
outro then pays off in a way that I think is just like a really lovely song construction. True. I don't like the just because I don't like those kind of rhythms. I don't know if you would describe it as herky-jerky. You don't like the herky-jerky dancers? But even the drum blasts throughout the song, they're all like kind of syncopated and cool. Like, you know, it's almost like they actually had a rhythmic motive and then followed through. Yeah. You know, even though it's like this kind of gutter punk song it there's like a a really true like music theory grounded logic to the way that they actually wrote it i feel interesting well and to the way to the way it builds on itself because like it starts like yeah like a pretty normal punk song you even got the gang vox in the background but there is that riff that's insistent and then teases and then builds into this like very epic finale Yeah, I think it's the most like standard punk song sounding thing to me, which is maybe why I don't like it as much until the last section where the the yeah the, the da, 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 and then there's a person talking. Uh, there's a voice like talking over, which I find hilarious. Which is so nerdy. I like doing stupid stuff like that. <laughs> so I think I think it's actually great. The voice says. Quickly, I said, because your feet need to hit the floor and wake your mind up because the body needs a little more and you step out from the porch into the street and the night will have its way with you. Uh, And then he says, like, you know, a defeated deposition, a nexus, a movement to fruition. That's like the Saul Williams on the... Yeah, on on the Blackalicious album. The Blackalicious album, except a much worse version. But it's okay. You can barely hear what he's saying anyway. I I just think it's hilarious to have someone talking over... It is, and I think it's one of the biggest tells on the album as far as them revealing that they're not cool (laughs) you know what i mean they're not taking themselves too seriously yeah or maybe too seriously you know (laughs) i mean the fact that this is again apparently inspired by the wong kar wai film days of being wild i couldn't tell you how but like the that there's like that plus this sort of epic scope and then these like spoken word thing. I don't know. It feels like these are intentional things that you do when you're like, I am making art. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I find that stuff like the whole metal machine music type stuff of just like making ridiculous choices and being like, I am an artiste. I guess it's a guilty pleasure for me, especially like in the context of something else, especially if it's in the context of a song, which is a more like straight punk song, Mm. which I wasn't feeling as much. So for that to come in at the end, it's like, damn, like I can't skip this track because it has that like moment at the end. (laughs) Yeah, no, I love, I love that moment. Yeah, I think it's great. It reminds me of like, I don't know if you've ever heard the Italian power metal band Rhapsody. Uh, (laughs) They had to change their name to Rhapsody of Fire after a lawsuit, I think with the audio company 
so they eventually had uh eventually they got a bunch of money and were able to make their huge epic lord of the Rings style album and they had enough money to hire oh what's what's his name christopher lee who played saruman oh he's he died do, a few, yeah. several years ago i think yeah rip oh i've heard of this yeah the metal songs that christopher lee was on yes it's it's incredible so they have him doing the narration and the spoken word like this throughout the album but before they had that budget they had to do it all themselves and you know they're they're italian and the english is a little broken and the guy kind of has a lisp so like there's a joke between tech and i because there's this album from one of their earlier albums which the song opens with the sound of wind and then suddenly you hear this voice that's like Yes, mighty warrior. What you hear around you <laughs> are the fallen warriors of old. <laughs> and we always thought that, you know, they were very into it and God love them, but it just come, does not, that power doesn't come across. And That sounds like Brad Neely voice. <laughs> a little bit. Uh, hello, yeah. fallen warriors. Uh, yes, today we're, warrior. we're going to look at the mighty warriors of old. So to me, when I hear that spoken word section in the song, I kind of get that same, you know, it's just like slightly cringe and I'm not someone, oh, you know, I think it's funny, but it's, but that's just me. And honestly, Liz, the fact that it really appeals to you, that's something beautiful. And I think that's the <laughs> wonderful thing about art is that it is not and should not be made in our own image, but that we can all find and hold on to the little bits and pieces that mean something to us. So I think I mean, I, you just you just changed my mind. Yeah, I think I'm a bit of a troll at heart, uh, <laughs> especially as I get older. So so when people do unexpected stuff like that, it can be pretty funny to me. But well, as somebody who's not a troll and is sometimes uncomfortably earnest, I love it. <laughs> I just I think the extra texture and like the very serious quality of it is. I don't know. I mean, again, like I love Muse and Queen Strike and bands who take themselves way too seriously. Like, I think it's great. It's campy. Speaking of uh, very earnest, the next song is Relative Ways. God, yeah. So this was the the other single, I guess. It's the other thing that had a video. The video for this song is a little bit more interesting. Like both the video for this and Another Morning Stone are basically the band playing, but this has more of the like arcane Lord of the Rings imagery there's a little bit of the like borrowing from similar aesthetics is like there's the, like stock footage stuff going on yeah, yeah. like the whole december is like it's not as bad it's not like our personal bugbear that one director who did the interpol and oh <laughs> yeah social scene videos but yeah getting to relative ways on this album when i was 18 it's like when i heard heart in the hand of the matter it was like, okay, drop everything. I've just heard my favorite rock song of all time. And then you get to Relative Ways and it's like, no, no. Now I've heard yeah. <laughs> the greatest rock song of all time. Like there are <laughs> there are simply not enough words to describe what this song meant to me and my bandmates for what it's worth when we were 18, 19. It was just so huge, so big, and that piano riff and the cut time, it was again, it's that like anime ballroom down 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 down. Yeah. You know, you're out, you know, at the symphony, you're wearing a suit, you know, you're sitting down in a chair. This is being performed for you and your life will never be the same. <laughs> it's the <laughs> Have you ever seen the video to Mr. Brightside by the Killer? Because it has that vibe to it. It's a very, like, 
it's definitely a song that's like it's full melodrama right like so one of the you know the way like a band like m83 is all about big teen feelings you know this song feels like exactly the perfect kind of big teen feeling song it goes so earnestly epic while still being at its core like a beautiful jingle pop song i think Mm -hmm. this is a yeah this is the most pop song of any of the songs at least on this album album. like the title track on worlds apart is definitely like taking from this and going into a more pop direction but yeah it's and it's beautiful it's so good that it comes when it does on the album because at this point Mm -hmm. it feels like all right this band they're they're so confident in what they're trying to achieve here and with relative ways, you know, whatever missteps there were along the way, like, they have just completely fucking nailed it. You know, this is, like, Pink Floyd, but super hard, you know, and, and I feel that, like, that the whole buildup to that final end cut time statement of that piano riff, I mean, it's, like, the greatest... Mm-hmm build up an end riff payoff that i had heard since like you know, like optimistic you know it's like that whole song builds up to that incredible end i feel like this this song is a very sort of similar mm. thing but it's like how can this payoff be so fucking good and the way that it goes into after the laughter it's just like the most exquisite not not to spoil but just like the most exquisite rock music world building i mean i know i'm being real hyperbolic here but this song really means a lot to me <laughs> Yeah, I was about to say when I first heard this album, I actually didn't like the song very oh, much. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, it's so immediate though. I think what it is is everything is so guttural up to this point, like so energetic, and I didn't know what to make of, of things like slowing down the, at the end. I was like, why is this album running out of steam? I just felt like it was running out of steam. I almost I, I get why it's at the point of the album that it is, but I, I almost wish this was earlier in the album because I think I might have oh. just reacted to it because it's before like a lot of like heavy v- perpetual motiony songs, and this is more like mid tempo pop song. But yeah, I really after, love it though. It feels like the the clouds breaking, you know. So after like listening to it on its own, I actually liked this song more. So uh, I eventually got into it, but when I first heard the album, I was a little but like, it's it's like when you hit the no surprises lucky the tourist yeah but it's it's different like okay computer is a very eclectic album this is like a you know has a perpetual motion feeling to like every song up until around but you don't this you point, don't feel so. the perpetual motion and that dum, da, dum, 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 no dum, i dum. i do but it it is a little bit more like you know when you've 
been at volume level 11 being at volume level 10 doesn't seem mm. as big no, I, you know I can, I can like, get that. to me i feel like that's what makes it work for me is that it's suddenly clean and pretty and an album that's only been gesturing towards it and i think it's also yeah. in the context of the closing track which i i love quite a bit and does a similar trick of paying off a motif established previously I don't know. I think there's something I kind of agree with James. It, it feels a bit like the tours of this idea of like the, the clouds breaking and the sun peeking through after, you know, a very emotionally fraught album. And maybe it's just me, but it's just like the dopamine hit that I get from that final buildup and the final riff. It's just and the way that that goes into after the laughter to me, that is just rock concept album craft at its absolute finest. I mean, like I said, I've, I enjoyed this song more the more that I heard it. So I, I like this song now. I think it just initially. But apparently, by the way, this song was written as like a pep talk to the band because they were in the Which middle. Which is very cute. Yeah, they were in the middle of recording the album. And apparently they, it was, things were getting kind of tense. Uh, some of these songs were written like years before. So this was written like during the album. So it's kind of like the band referring to itself. Also, apparently the title was a reference to pink floyd the song time oh wow yeah that was the, one of the notes that i made was pink floyd but hard as fuck yeah. and then a, a hyphen main thesis of trail of dead question mark <laughs> i mean they mentioned pink floyd several times in like their right. interviews so i don't think that's uh, a stretch at all no but yeah, no, I, I see what, like, I think it was their intention to make this song be like a break in the clouds. And like, once I kind of got that this was constructed that way intentionally, it started to make more sense to me. So I do and like the song. And it ends on that minor chord. Like, it's so raw. Like, ah. Uh... Yeah. And then it goes immediately into After the Laughter, which is kind of a, you know, another like, this actually calls back to Invocation, the uh, which is you know not on a lot of the track list, but it has kind of a guitar feedback. It has a plaintive, very old timey sounding piano riff. There's like some like garbled old timey singing in the background, and then they have like uh, vocal harmonies, which is like that's the first time where I like I understand where they're talking about pet sounds, uh, like what they were going for mm -hmm. there. It sounds a little bit to me like Abbey Road yeah, or something. Yeah, it, it always is... reminded me of like Sun King or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it reminds me of Sun King. Abbey Road, my fourth favorite Beatles album. <laughs> anyway. Well, we can have another podcast about that. I think that, that album's but... overrated. I Please have it without me. When I was listening, when I was like re-listening to this album, rediscovering it, it's like by the time you get to After the Laughter, it's like 
that was probably the moment when it's like pitchfork you know it's like okay this is a 10 out of 10 you know no matter what this last track is like we're there this is a perfect album at least i mean it's like when those strings come in you know it is you know yeah speaking of the last track i think i do think the after the laughter does call back to invocation i'm not actually sure um the title track calls back to after the laughter right it's it's that riff yeah yeah oh right you're right right okay so the last song is source tags and codes which is named after the album and it's the most like uh what's not like low-key it's the slowest it's wrapping things up i guess you could say it it has that feeling it definitely feels like the the closing song but i love this song it's one of those so every so often i'll find a song where i get really hyper fixate on just a part of it that is not representative of the whole and the opening riff of this song that gets repeated a couple times briefly yeah yeah. with with the the one to the minor third progression is one of my favorite things on the album like somehow musically that scratches such an incredible itch for me and and i've always been kind of bummed that the rest of the song doesn't do anything with it but that riff feels like correct for this moment of the album well it's actually i mean this song is pretty compositionally competent too i mean the way that it all kind of like the chords all kind of trickle down, you know, the na, da, da, da. but it still is able to come down to almost nothing and then just rip open and explode again. And it's like you thought relative ways that was the climax of the album. But then suddenly the last track, which, you know, starts as this contemplative kind of rolling, tumbling along it just stops and then shreds open again and you have like one mm-hmm. last spiritual revelation you know a huge emotional yeah. breakthrough uh right at the end that crescendo that crescendo on the uh on the after the laughter if the dun, 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 like when they finally hit that again is such like an oh emotional God, high point yeah. for me it's insane i have goosebumps just thinking about it <laughs> yeah it's something that could be viewed as like corny or a little bit too much in another context that's why it, it works work on this album yeah you know melodrama you have to go for it or you'll never hit moments like this you know yeah exactly So what I was going to say, like, I think the, the verses have an interesting pro- progression, but my favorite part is like, he says, where are those who dare to tread the wheel one day find out what's behind the hill? And it gets, one day find out what's behind the hill. Yeah, and, the, you know, the weird tumbling thing. Yeah, and then it goes, it's more that anime ballroom shit. Yeah, and there's a there's a little bit of sprinkling of of piano in there. So, and like the last lines being 
to the the one that I received, each painted sign along the road will melt away in source tags and code. Now, if you like think about that in terms of like, you know, like the, the fact that they're working office jobs and it goes, I guess, back to the OK computer theme of feeling more and more dissociated and what's the word like isolated? isolated and disconnected and everything sort of becoming a product of technology. I think it's an interesting, it's not like very highly referenced in this album, but the fact that it like brings it up right at the end, it's kind of makes you think about like, oh, okay, was this a, an overarching theme of the album? Like it makes you want to go back and kind of listen to this. Like, this is kind of like, you know, tying a bow on it, wrapping it up or something. Um, I always got a sense that it was almost like becoming at peace with your own flaws in a way that you can only get after you've gone through the shit you know it feels like the end of a journey like in a very like cinematic way to bring that word up again which i think is adds to the feel of this album right that it ends in something that is this like we are in the end credits you know Mm -hmm. yeah but it's pretty sad though because he says i don't know what in this world is trying to save me but I can feel its hand and it's guiding me and sign. And this is like a lyric that, you know, you can actually really hear when he's singing. It's from the lives I've tried to lead to the one that I've received. Each painted sign along the road will melt away in source tags and code. So there's this feeling of like, it's all for not like, you know, or I think there's a like, the way that I say that is like, it doesn't properly convey it, but there is a little bit of, of darkness there of just a realizing of mm-hmm. uh, futility in some way or ex- expression of futility. It's a beautiful, poignant statement because that's exactly what life and the human condition is. You know, it's like you think you're going to walk a certain path when you're young and you do your best to try to walk that path. But there's so many external forces that sort of your life happens, you know, between what you thought it was going to be and then what you have to do to survive, basically. Mm -hmm. And But everyone goes through that, you know. That's the sort of the shared experience. And so it might be isolating, but at the same time, it's shared with almost everyone on Earth, you know. Yeah, it's very emotionally resonant. I think that's what wraps it up nicely. And of course, at the end, we have the like secret ghost track secret track part of the ghost track with the string section and if you have the uk version there is actually a bonus track called blood rights which is also on the ep that was released before and it starts off with just like some ambient noise and it's just like a like a heavy kind of punk song i mean it's an interesting addendum to the album i think it actually the ambience part at the end of source tags and codes like the the secret track and the uh, ambience at the beginning of this kind of fade into each other nicely but it's not like it's not essential like it's just like one last burst of energy actually the drums on it remind me of the drums on the the pearl jam song animal (laughs) the like the boom boom, boom, you know like it has a similar like drum so are we gonna do a pearl jam episode because that would be sweet uh, I mean, if you would, if you would do it, I would absolutely, uh, I, I would absolutely Let's do, do it. it. Although, like, yeah, I'd probably have to be one of their '90s albums because I'm not as familiar with. I guess I heard the Avocado album when it came out, but like, I'm mostly familiar with like their '90s stuff. But no, I'm I'm down. I love Pearl Jam. I was also just thinking because like I'm I'm listening to you too. It's it's wild that this like punk rock album is able to get us talking like this about like the great truths of life or whatever 
I think that's where maybe the the haze of giving this album a 10 comes from, right? Mm. That an album is able to provoke this kind of emotionality and thoughtfulness, regardless of like its lasting influence or its like merits as an album. I think anything that can provoke this kind of conversation is a massively important art piece. Well, and the only thing that I can speak to as far as its, you know, personal influences, I think when I look back at who I was, the music that I was making and gaining the confidence to want to make something like this album, you know, hearing this album when it came out, it made me feel like, okay, it's it's okay if you want to deal with big cosmic themes and you know it's like the strings at the very end of the album like they're so ridiculously indulgent at that point but that's fine because the whole album is and it's like well why shouldn't i be self-indulgent as an artist you know as long as it's not you know pretentious like literally pretentious like i'm trying to make something that sucks seem better by applying all this useless meaning to it i mean there's yeah there is a visceral quality that is like it's a very entertaining album to listen to but it's still super nerdy and it's still super grandiose in a time when bands like the strokes were making it uncool to make really big grandiose statements and i think that the pushback that worlds apart got was like okay so we let you get away with this once but now this is too far you know this is too grandiose and too many wizards yeah now the era has changed and we're trying to create this like cool aesthetic behind rock. like rock has become trendy again indie rock has become like a trendy aesthetic and what the trendy aesthetic it is is not that mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. yeah it's so funny because it's sort of the opposite happened with Spoon, like of our previous episode, where they became sort of <laughs> bellwethers of that scene. But I think one of the things that was, again, an interesting theme that comes up again and again in the podcast is like when I was fairly young, like I did experience some of those, like Kid A, uh, Soft Bulletin, some of those albums that are very epic scaled. I think all the stuff that you described this album doing for you is like what the flaming lips did for me at that age Mm. if that makes Mm -hmm. sense like soft bulletin and yoshimi and even their earlier rock stuff has like very sincere parts to it but i think oh i completely forgot where i was going i i think like good album (laughs) yeah it's a good album and like i don't know it doesn't quite sound like anything else to me and i think that's what might actually save it in the end because Regardless of what historical impact it had, apparently it sold like a hundred thousand copies in the first three years. I mean, which is okay. Not Interscope good. Not Interscope good, and certainly not as good as like Yankee Hotel Foxtrot or Turn On the Bright Lights. But I mean, the book isn't closed on any of these things, and I do think like I was quite surprised by the combination of elements. It's even though there's so many things about this that sound like other things at the time the the combination of them is not something that i quite heard any other band do and i think that's what makes it interesting to me and it makes me not want to be cynical in the same way that we are cynical about a band like spoon or you know when we'll get to like you know the hold steady or something like that or the decemberist you know when we'll get to those (laughs) right so yeah it's it's just you know, I really appreciate, I'm so glad that James suggested this album because like revisiting it, 
today. I'm definitely going to go on a, a streak of just listening to Trail of Dead for the next few weeks. But it was, it felt like getting in touch with like a very pure, unselfconscious emotionality from like the, from that era of my life, mm. from that era when you can just feel things without having to overthink them or thinking about like how it affects like. I can't be emotional. I have to get up in the morning and go to work. Mm-hmm. Like there's something very raw and honest about this album and so like unselfconscious and and unpretentious that I obviously is the kind of thing that the indie music press would hate and like turn on, you know, mm-hmm. immediately. But is so still so effective. It still works. Like it's it it's not dated the same way that I feel like a lot of like Arcade Fire's albums have become. Oh, 100%, yeah. And those are also like epic earnest albums, but they're really they feel dishonest <laughs> mm-hmm. in a way that this album feels like honest to the point of almost uh, incoherency. I don't know. It's It's been a really wonderful experience. Well, and not to uh, not to make it all about myself, but... No problem. You're our guest. No, you're our guest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but when you all listen to Dark Life, keep in mind that... Which Dark Life? Can you say what Dark Life is? Could you explain it? Yeah, so Dark Life is the new album from Death Dynamic Shroud, and we've been working on it for years and years, and I feel like it's labored on and has the same spirit of ambition as an album like this. And that's why, you know, Tech and I specifically were really drawn to music like this, because even when we were in, you know, the sailing together, that was a big part of what we wanted to achieve was like this huge, massive sound dealing with these, you know, cosmic existential themes. And, you know, very, very honestly, earnestly with like not even a shred of irony, basically, just total sincerity. So Dark Life, which is a lot longer, is also it's very similar, though, because it also is kind of relentlessly pummeling. And I think that you could definitely I mean, not you won't hear a direct influence, obviously, but there's still like we were very inspired just by the audacity that Trail of Dead had with this album and Worlds Apart specifically Mm -hmm. to really not care about how they were perceived by others. And I think that it's, you know, maybe it's just an accident that such an amazing album came out of that sort of level of almost like an innocence, you know, to put in the spoken word and not think that people will think that that's like cringe or whatever. Just be like, no, that's what we want to do. Like, this is fucking sick. Yeah. Like that that level of you can tell that they feel freedom and confidence in the art that they are making and that they're completely unhindered by wanting to be cool or worrying about how they will be perceived. And I think Absolutely. Yeah. That's why you get that sort of sense of honesty. Yeah. from listening to the album even though it is so overwrought, it never falls into this like they're never putting on a front like what you see is what you get with Trail of Dead at the very least. So if any pitchfork writers are listening to us <laughs> right now, you know, and you review Dark Life and you say that and you will know us by the Trail of Dead hasn't had any lasting influence there. Yeah. There's your scoop right there. <laughs> Right. This is the proof is in the pudding. I fucking love this album. <laughs> yeah, when they give Dark Life a 10.0, you know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. We'll it would see. be great if 
Pitchfork actually reviewed Vaporwave albums, but they would just give it a six point eight, like they give every album. It would, I think, <laughs> they would give yeah, yeah would give it a seven, like they give everything. Oh. Yeah, I think that Dark Life uh, would get a six or a seven from Pitchfork. I'm on the record as saying that, but you know, it's but that's how you know it's good. Yeah, that's how that's how you know it's good. Totally. Oh my goodness. But yeah, well, we should rank them before we before we go. So Oh yeah. Where is it on your list? We should post like the list somewhere finally because we should post gotten... a list because I forget it all the time. Yeah. They've gotten so big that we should probably do that. But for me, this is just this is number three on the list. This is just below little earthquakes. Oh, what is it above? What's the uh, it's just above Vespertine. Oh, interesting. Above Vesper well, that's, a, that's okay. a tough call. Yeah. Wow. It is a tough call. But <laughs> this album, I don't know. It hits me in a different and I think in, at this point in my life, more impactful way. Mm-hmm. It's it's the kind of thing where like it would probably be below Vespertine back when I was 17. And for some reason now, it's just a little above. <laughs> okay, so I'm putting it, I couldn't decide. It's similar to You Forgot It In People to Broken Social Scene. I mean, the albums are quite different from each other. So I had trouble like deciding whether I want it above or because it's just a much different experience. I think I put it slightly above. So it's number four on my list below GeoGaddy. Got it. Yeah. And Vespertine and Little Earthquakes, but above You Forgot It In People and Yankee Hotel Fox. That's extremely fair. Yeah, I think that's reasonable. I would be hard pressed to argue that this album is better than those albums. Yeah, we picked some some real good ones to talk about. I mean, I, that said, Turn On The Bright Lights is still my number one, and it's not been, so you know. Yeah, well, and that's like number seven on my list. So there, there are personal biases at work. <laughs> yeah. But that's what makes art and being a human so much fun. You know? So true. So, James, I know you've already plugged Dark Life, but do you want to plug anything? So Dark Life should be out by the time we post this episode. It will be out uh, by the time we post this episode. Yeah. Uh, but is there anything else you want to plug before we before we go? Well, we're going on tour in October with George Clanton and Negative Gemini, so that should be super cool. So I will know, probably see your show in brooklyn whenever that is oh tight cool well i will see you there are y'all coming to chicago uh no we're doing kind of a east coast um and Uh, then ending at uh in austin where it all began for trail of dead so we will be following the trail of dead all the way back to austin (laughs) if you will so and we will know them so conrad keely you better show up (laughs) i think he's in thailand (laughs) or no he's in cambodia Oh, okay. Oh, damn. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I saw you guys at uh, Electronicon. I mentioned it briefly at one of the other times, and it was a great time. I, I didn't know what to expect. Uh, Electronicon was a big, quote unquote, vaporwave event run by George Clinton, right? He's Yeah, yeah. I, I can't stop. I keep hearing George Clinton. Yeah. I keep thinking the P-Funk icon is doing this. <laughs> but yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was a great time. And we finally got to meet IRL after all these years. Yes. At the, at the very end, I was like very anxious because people kept coming up to you guys and like taking fan photos. And I was like, uh, I'm a little bit anxious about this because it's not my scene, you know? Yeah, yeah. But uh, I'm glad that I did. I'm glad that that happened. Because Liz, I... We met in some Twitter DM. Yes, what, I don't like want to years get into that. and years ago. Like I don't, I don't remember all the specifics, but I do, unfortunately. <laughs> 
But yeah, I don't know. Like I was talking about guided by voices or something, and and you were like, "Oh, I'm from Ohio." And yeah, you all are from. So Death's Dynamic Shroud, all of them are from Ohio. So this is like my o- Ohio pride moment. Also, <laughs> I love that because me and me and Liz also met because of like because we did an episode on guided by voices. Yeah, and oh, Liz nice. DM'd me about it. GBV yeah. brings the world together. You know, it's it's, it's true. so true. We're gonna do several guided by voices episodes. Yeah. I guarantee because. Well, I'd love to to come back for your relaxation of the asshole episode. (laughs) Yes, it's happening. Oh, yeah, we do have to do that. (laughs) It's a 10 slash (laughs) 0. But yeah, with that, that's Kitchfork. Yeah. Please, if you have any, there aren't any letters, and we've run pretty late anyway, but if you have any letters, please send it to kitchforkpodcast at gmail.com. Would love to read them. Uh, The ones that I've read have been very fun it's been very fun to especially hear from like gen z listeners uh who were were children or barely born by the time we were talking about these albums and yeah also you know rate and review our podcast uh etc on apple podcasts so yes i have been your co-host liz ryerson i've been your other co-host max cohen and i've been your guest james webster Thank you so much for having me on. This was super fun. And yes. having a reason to listen to this album again, it was an extremely emotional experience. And all of this will be lost in source tags and code. Yes, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I needed to finish an outro. With we the, needed the button, right? I need a cringe, like, outro. Hit the button, Frank. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on, James. This was a lot of fun. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you again. I don't know.